All right. Well, the last time I stood before you at this pulpit, it was a Sunday after Easter, after we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we began a new sermon series titled Resurrected Living. Um, and that first sermon was titled Resurrected Hope. We saw that because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, we who trust in him also participate in his resurrected life. Peter said, as we recall what from the passage, he says, we have been born again into a living hope. Today we will look at how Jesus' resurrection has given us resurrected minds. Elsewhere, Paul writes that we are able to understand the words of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Paul went on to say, we, we have the mind of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but all too often, far more than I like to admit, my mind is distracted from the things of Christ. How about you? Well, thanks be to God that we are continually under His mercy and grace towards us. And what we will see this morning is that His mercy means everything for us. And because of His mercy, our minds are being renewed. Our text is Romans chapter 12. It's verses 1 and 2. If you recall, Romans chapters 1 through 11 were Paul's big theological discourse on God's mercy and His grace, our fallen state, our need of salvation, His mercy towards us. And now, beginning in verse 12, there's a big therefore. In light of all of this, we are to have renewed minds in Christ. Let's read the passage here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know His will, if you want to know His way, we must know His word. Let's pray. Father, this, this word to us is all about Your will and Your way and how it comes into our lives by Your Spirit uh, and by Your word. And so we pray that, that You would uh, move in us by Your Spirit, that You would help us to apprehend uh, these important truths, that they may not just be things that we think about, but rather may we put them into action. By your grace, we pray. Amen. Do you remember that old Colgate commercial? Some of you are too young to remember, so I kind of describe it. That old Colgate commercial where um, where they took a stick of white chalk and they stuck it into that purple dyed water. Uh, the, Colgate was trying to demonstrate how their fluoride actually penetrates the tooth enamel. And so you see this woman and, it's, and she would dip the chalk into this purple colored water. And, and after a few seconds, she would take it out and she would snap it and, and show you um, what took place on the, on the inside. And as you look at the cross section of the chalk, you would see how the, the purple liquid had penetrated into the chalk and had discolored it on, on the inside. 
Now, the goal of that commercial was to try to get you to buy Colgate um, and so that you would see that the fluoride is really important. It penetrates into your teeth. Now, this is not a sermon on dental hygiene. So the image of that purple dye penetrating into that white chalk helps us to to illustrate what we see, what Paul's writing in verse 2. He says what? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul wants his readers and us to understand that we are like sticks of chalk that are being dunked into this world, and this world contains us. And it's true. This world as it is right now poses a challenge for Christians. God calls us to live one way, and the world says no way. And so we confess that God alone is worthy of our praise, and yet the world we live in says that we're to worship our appetites. We confess that God has given us an identity, a worth that is found nowhere else on earth, and yet the world that we live in says, find your worthiness in beauty or career or marriage or, or wealth. We confess that God's commands are good and pleasing and, and that they show us what is acceptable to Him and how, how we are to live our lives. And yet the world says, don't let those outdated rules impinge upon your happiness. We confess that we want to honor God with our bodies and yet the world says, have sex with whomever you wish. You have animal instincts after all. You just need to gratify them. We confess that we have an, an anchor, a living hope for our souls. And yet the world says, don't live for some day in the future. Living in the now is all that matters. The world we live in has its own view on life and meaning and purpose that is contrary to God's view of life and meaning and purpose. And this is the world that we live in for now. And so Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Now, he doesn't say run from this world. He doesn't say hide out in holy enclaves, which unfortunately is what some Christians do. Christians have a calling from God to be salt and light in this broken world and not be tainted by it. What we'll see this morning as we look at this text is that Christians, by virtue of their resurrected lives in Christ, now have this gift of resurrected minds. We have the mind of Christ dwelling in us by God's Holy Spirit. And so Paul appeals to our minds this morning in two areas. First, there is an attitude we are to have. And second, there is an action that we are to undertake. First, the attitude. And here's the big idea with this point. Because of God's abundant mercy towards us in Christ, our proper attitude is to want to live our lives, every ounce of our lives for God's glory, to hold nothing back. Paul makes an appeal, right? I appeal to you. Now, the Greek word translated, I appeal, is quite strong. The King James Version says, I beseech you. Nobody says that anymore. The NIV says, I urge you. Tim Keller says that these two verses, these just these two verses are a summary of the whole Christian life. It is so important that Paul commands our attention. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I urge you. I appeal to you. And an appeal is made to where? Our hearts? No. An appeal is made to our minds. Paul wants us to think these things through. 
And what is it that he appeals to us to, to think about and to do? Look at the end of verse 1. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, any way you slice it, this sounds daunting, doesn't it? <laughs> like, holy cow, what is this? Paul isn't asking for some minor realignment of our priorities. This is a total consecration of all we are. But before he goes to to lay down what this is like, what does he first do? He makes sure that we have our proper motivation. Why on earth would this church in Rome listen, let alone commit to such a life-swallowing paradigm shift? And why would we do so as well? There's one short phrase, I hope you caught it, that makes all the difference in the world. Do you see it there? By the mercies of God. If you're here today and you think that being a Christian is about doing the things that God commands so that He will just pat you on the back, you've got it all terribly wrong. Paul doesn't appeal to their sense of guilt. Come on, Roman church. How about finally doing the right things for once so that God can accept you? Nor does Paul appeal to their fear. Come on, church in Rome. If you do not offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, then I'm afraid it's all over for you. No, what is the only proper motivation for us to live a God-honoring life? Grace, God's grace and His mercy towards you. That's the only proper motivation. You know, if I say to my kids, you know, there'll be no dinner unless you clean your rooms, then I'm doing what? I'm motivating them out of fear. If I say to my kids, I, I wish you were more obedient like the other kids, I'd be motivating them, what, out of, out of guilt, right? Religions, other than Christianity, they motivate this way by fear and by guilt. But Christianity motivates this way. It says, kids, your mother and I, we love you. And it's Mother's Day. Um, um, we will always love you and provide for you. Now, as a response to our love and our mercy towards you, please clean up your room before dinner. Now, I'm sure you know that this mercy motivation doesn't always motivate kids. <laughs> Our kids at time can they can take our love and mercy for granted. But let's be honest. Isn't it true? So too in the Christian life, we can take God's mercy, His grace for granted. Sometimes we feel like we can get more things done when we, cause, when we motivate out of fear or guilt, right? But understand this. Your God, your God who calls you to this life will never motivate you this way. If you are sensing in you a need to improve your life or become a better Christian and the motivation is anything but God's mercy to you, what you are embracing is what is called legalism. Legalism motivates out of Fear and guilt and pride. God will only motivate us by His grace and His mercy, which is why God alone gets the glory 
when our lives are transformed by His grace and mercy. So here Paul urges the Christians in Rome by the mercies of God. In other words, ponder the extent of God's mercy towards you. And as Paul has just spent 11 chapters, now they didn't have chapter headings back then. It was just, it was like, I think maybe some people were maybe starting to doze off. But 11 chapters in to the writing, um, it's all about God's grace and mercy. That is to be our motivation. I like how Thomas Erskine puts it. He says this, listen, in the New Testament, religion is grace. And ethics is gratitude. Simple as that. Why do you obey? Because of gratitude. Why do you want to not conform to the patterns of the world? Because of gratitude. The Christian life is always a response to God's grace. We seek to honor God and obey His commands, not to earn His acceptance, but because we already are accepted in Christ. Now, interrogate yourself. Is this how you live? Or do you tend to be motivated by fear? What will others think of me if I don't do X, Y, or Z? Or by guilt? I'm not a good enough Christian, so I have to read my Bible more. May that not be your motivation for reading the Bible more. Paul had just written 11 chapters on the mercy of God, and then comes the big therefore. Paul is saying, ponder that mercy. Ponder that infinitely high pile of mercy of God towards you. Soak it in. Be, be like that stick of chalk, but instead of being in the world, be, be soaking in the mercy of God so that it infuses you and energizes you and causes you to want to respond with a life that is glorifying to God. But it's only after we understand it's the mercy that motivates us that we can begin to understand the appeal. And so let's do that to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, the audience back in Paul's day, they would have moved to the edge of their seats. See, they were far more familiar than we are with, with animal sacrifices. They would have at one time surely stood at an altar and watched as an animal was identified as theirs as they, as they put their sins upon this animal in a ritual manner. It was slain for them. And, and this just wouldn't be any old crippled animal. You wouldn't go out to the farm pen and find that, that runt who only had three legs, right? This would be a, a pure, acceptable, uh, perfect sacrifice. And it would die there in your place. And so Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. You know, it's interesting that Paul says bodies. He doesn't say hearts or sentiments or our feelings or our best intentions. You know, the typical evangelical understanding is that we give our hearts to God, but not our bodies. To the original audience, though, they would have understood this to mean the entire human person, body and soul, thoughts and actions. John Stott challenges us when he writes, but Paul is clear that the presentation of our bodies is our spiritual act of worship. It is a significant Christian paradox. Listen, 
No worship is pleasing to God, which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. So don't miss what Paul is saying. It's not a, Paul says it's not enough that God has your thoughts. Because of his abundant mercy, he is deserving of the full energy of your entire life. Paul is saying that your life, the entirety of your being is to be lived for, for God's glory and his purpose. Just as the entirety of the animals thrown upon the altar to be consumed, so too uh, we are to be thrown in our entirety upon the altar of God's purpose and plans for us as his people. Too many people will say, I'll give you a few hours on Sunday and a few prayers in the week. Too many people say, I'll give you my marriage, but not my career. Or God, I'll give you some of my finances, but not my anger, not my lust. Paul says that because of God's abundant mercy, he is deserving of the full energy of your entire life. My friends, it's true, isn't it? All of life is to be lived as an offering to God. Paul ends by verse 1 by saying that this devoted life is what? Your spiritual worship. Now, other translations will say reasonable service. The Greek is a little amb ambiguous there. Um, but altogether, they're both right, right? A reasonable way to live your life in view of God's mercy towards you is to live as a living sacrifice. And, and by living this way, our lives are worshiping God in a holy and pleasing way. So let's do this. Let's some, take some time today before we come to the Lord's Supper to soak in the mercy of God. And this week, don't begin to start any task for God until you get your motivation right. Any other motivation than God's grace towards you is simply legalism. Legalism will always fail. It will not give you the power to complete what God has called you to do. But the mercy of God, which is oversupplying towards you, Gives you all the power and strength you need to endure, to persevere, to complete the task. And so let us also see that the logical and good response to God's mercy towards us is to delight to live the entirety of our beings, of our lives, as a living sacrifice. That is to be the attitude of our resurrected minds. Now for the action. And the big idea here is this. Though we are new creations in Christ, and if you trust in Christ, you are a new creation. Our newness isn't automatic. It's not inevitable. We must actively seek this renewal that God offers. There is action on our part. In verse 2, Paul presents us with two actions that we are to undertake. The first is stated in the negative, right? Do not be conformed. And the second is in the positive. Be transformed. One commentator makes this excellent point. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. The human beings seem to be imitative by nature. We need a model to copy, and ultimately there are only two. There is this world, literally this age, which is passing away, and there is God's will, which is good, 
pleasing and perfect. So first, the negative. Paul simply states, do not be conformed to this world. Paul is calling upon us to use our resurrected minds, and with those minds, to commit to a life of non-conformity to this fallen world we live in. And this is how Jesus preached often, right? Do not pray like the hypocrites, he said. Do not store up treasure on earth like the rest of humanity, but store up treasure in heaven. Do not strike back like the rest of the world, but turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give your cloak and your tunic. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Do not be conformed to this world. You know, I think every Christian nods their head and goes, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Even the newest of Christian can see how the world negatively influences them. The problem we face, though, is that it's not simply enough to know how the ways of the world affect us or harm us. There are actions that are to be taken. The verb tense that we have here of be conformed is a present passive imperative. Uh, the passive tense describes an action that happens to you. Being conformed to this world is something that happens to you and me if we don't actively fight against it. Look at it this way. If the world we live in uh, was a river and we are in a canoe, then unless the Christian is actively paddling upstream towards God, he or she naturally flows away from God and into the influences of this world. Does that make sense? In other words, the world we live in will conform us unless we actively take actions to not be conformed. And what are these actions? Well, Paul says it is to be transformed. The Greek word translated be transformed is metamorpho, which where we get the English word metamorphosis. It's used only four times in the Bible. Matthew and Mark use it when they describe Jesus being transfigured before them on the mountain. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, when he speaks of how God is making us to be more and more like Jesus, where he says, and we all, listen, and we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Listen, if you belong to Christ, if you belong to the Lord, then God has you on a sure and certain trajectory. He is making you to be more and more like Jesus Christ. One day you will see Christ face to face. And on that day, you'll be finally, fully like Him. Let me ask you. I know there's some females in here, but let, let me just, just pretend. If someone were to say to you, when you, are, when you were a little boy, if they were to say to you, guess what? One day, I know for certain, I know this for certain, you are going to be the starting quarterback for the New York Giants football team. 
that this was certain. Other than saying, maybe I want to be traded. <laughs> I mean, how would you respond? Would you not all your young life take the actions necessary to be an NFL quarterback? Would you not come early to practice and stay late after? Would you not work, lift weights and work on your agility? Would you not work at being what you are one day destined to be? Of course you would. People would say you'd be foolish not to. And that is what Paul is calling us to participate in. God has promised one day to make you perfect and holy and good, like Christ when he returns. And so God is transforming you from one degree of glory to another until that day comes. Now, I know, I know that process seems oh so slow. It's like two steps forward and one step back. You know, I've been a Christian for 24 years and I'm still amazed, still amazed at how far short I am of being Christ-like. And yet, and I'm sure you can do this too, and yet I look back over those years and, and I see that God has transformed me from one glory to another to another. And yet there's far more glory yet to come. I look back over my life and yes, I see all the failures that I've had and I have all these regrets, but I also see God's mercy and His grace towards me. I hope as you look back on your life, Christian, that you see that as well. We're often so prone to see where we fall short. We have a hard time seeing where God has taken us from one glory to another and another. <laughs> Ultimately, though, it is God who brings about this transformation. Once again, the verb tense of be transformed is just like the do not be conform. It's a present passive imperative. This isn't, listen, this isn't transform yourself. No, this is be transformed. See, your transformation is a work of God in your life. You're not alone in this. In fact, He's in charge of it. We get to participate in it. Because God loves you and He has a plan for you to be more like Jesus Christ, He will transform you. How? He says in the text, by the renewal of your mind. God's answer for the sinful world pressing in on us from the outside is what? His transformation that takes place in us on the inside. And what is God's means for bringing about this resurrected or renewal of your mind? Well, we don't see it in the text, but many places elsewhere, Paul tells us that this renewal what comes by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. So essentially there are two things necessary for us to know God and to discern His goodwill for us. We must have the Spirit of God dwelling in us and we must have the Word of God before us. It is only by the Spirit of God that any of us can even hope to properly understand His Word and receive it. And God in Christ, this is the good news, has given us His Spirit and His Word. That is how the renewal of your mind happens. The psalmist understands this in Psalm 119, verse 9. 
He rejoices singing. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. God transforms us by His Holy Spirit and through our meditation upon Scripture. Paul writes in verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There are only two value systems in this world. The world's and God's. God's will. They're incompatible. And so as we desire to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, we must be transformed by His Spirit through His Word then we'll be able to test and discern the will of God, to know what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then we can with joy and with confidence walk in this broken world as Christ has called us to. Holy and acceptable to God. So what's our proper response this morning? I think it's obvious we need to be soaking in the Word of God. Like that Colgate commercial with that Stick of chalk. We need to be immersing ourselves uh, in the mercy of God. And we need to be immersing ourselves in the Word of God so that we can soak it in and be transformed by it. You know, the elders here at Grace Church and, and the staff, we, we truly want to foster daily Bible reading. We began this church year with various options for daily devotionals and that. And I know some of you are, are doing them, and that's good. But why do we do this? Well, we don't do it so you can just check off a box every day. Oh, I did my reading, you know. That's kind of a legalistic approach. But we do it so that the Word of God may transform us more and more into the image of Christ. So, Either Grace Church is paddling upstream in the power of the Holy Spirit under the inspiration of the Word of God, or we're floating downstream under the influence of this broken world. It's as simple as that. So we've done what we need to do. We sat under the transforming Word of God. Look, we just did what the what our Scripture says to do. Okay, not as excited as I am. But anyway... Do you see now why Tim Keller says these two verses are the summary of the whole Christian life? Our lives are to be lived as a response to God's abundant and endless mercy towards us. We're to live in gratitude that He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So God's grace and His mercy is love for us. That's to be our only motivation in life. So my friends, let us not take the mercy and the grace of God for granted. May the Gospel not become stale to us. Indeed, may we live in humility knowing that we are debtors to God's mercy. In a moment, we come before the Lord's table. As we do, perhaps take some time to recognize in your own life personally perhaps how the allure of this world still has a grip upon you. Guess what? We can repent of that. and We could soak in the mercy and grace of God and be reminded why we are following after Christ. 
all the more. And may we encourage one another by the mercies of God to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is our spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father, it's true. You are the one who brings about the transformation. Our new life in Christ, our lives in Christ, are, are it's all your idea. We were happy. We were happy floating in the, in the wisdom of this world until you came and sought us out and gave us new life. May we not lose track of that. May, if it's even just for this afternoon, may we delight in the glories of your redemption towards us in Christ. May we feed on Christ here at this table. May we be energized and strengthened. May we live by grace for your glory, we pray. Amen.